Hi everyone, you're listening to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and this is episode 22. On today's episode, we discuss Indian mega corporation Tata with our guest Mircea Rayanu. He is a historian who just recently released his book titled Tata, the global corporation that built Indian capitalism. Right from the book title, you can see that the Tata Corporation isn't just any corporation. This is a very fascinating episode. I can't wait till you guys hear it. Also, if you're enjoying the Brown History Podcast and you want to help out, you want to sustain it, you want to watch it grow, then consider being a Patreon. Just visit brownhistorypodcast.com. Anything you contribute, no matter how small, will go a long, long way. So now let's start this episode. Shall we begin? Here we go. So, yeah, so if you want to start, we can start. Sure. Yeah. Um. All right. For people who don't know what the Tata Corporation is, could you explain what it is and why it's so important when you look at the history of capitalism in India? Sure. So uh, Tata is one of India's largest uh, and most diversified corporate groups. Uh, it's been around since around the 1850s, so for about um, 150 plus years. And that kind of longevity alone, I think, is reason to um, focus on it and to study it. Very few conglomerates uh, of this kind around the world uh, have that kind of longevity. So there are lots of different comparisons that you could make between Tata and, for example, um, Samsung in Korea or, um, you know, many groups in Latin America. So this is um, having a group that is so that is large and diversified. So when I say diversified, I'm talking about everything from industry, steel, um, hydroelectric power generation, cars, uh, to consumer products, retail products. Uh, they make the salt uh, that goes on people's dinner tables. And also more recently, we're talking about information technology consulting and these kind of new service sector businesses. So it's not uncommon. So that kind of diversification, when I talk about it, it seems, um, you know, they call it a salt to software, T to IT group. So when I talk about it, it seems pretty impressive, but it's not so uncommon uh, around the world. Now, what is uncommon is that you couple that with this longevity, with the fact that they've been around for so long and also have survived through different um, political and economic transitions. So if you think about what the world was like when Tata got its start in the middle of the 19th century under the British Empire, then into the period of the rise of nationalism and then into the early years of independent India and then now in this kind of globalized and liberalized uh, world economy, Tata has retained its position as one of India's leading groups. So for me, I think those two reasons, um, the size, the scale, the, uh, the scope of the group and the fact that it's been around for so long, you put those two together, I thought it would be uh, a very important uh, group to study. And I think it's for those reasons, I think also people uh, who maybe are not aware of Tata should be interested in it a little bit more and and, and get some, uh, um, maybe think about it comparatively with some of the other uh, cases that I mentioned, or even uh, in, in the US and, and other places. In 150 years that it existed, I think it was passed down three times to various different family members. Yeah. Would you say, is there a common philosophy between the three that made it survive this long? So it's an interesting question because um, if you just look at, you know, if you open up the Wikipedia page and you look at the list of leaders or chairman, right, uh, you will see um, these three major figures, each kind of corresponding to a period of time 
kind of what I was mentioning. So Jamshedji Tata represents the beginning of the group in the colonial period. JRD Tata represents the phase of the group when it was consolidating and um, also dealing with the new Indian government. So this is the era of the transition independence and the time of a kind of mixed economy or quasi-socialist economy. And then Ratan Tata, the most recent long-serving chairman, represents the period post-91 of globalization and liberalization. And they're all Tatas and they're all related. Yeah. So you might think that Tata is actually this kind of perfect or idealized case study of a family-based business group because you see the names of Tata. And actually the chairman now, uh, Chandrasekharan, is the first non-Parsi chairman and one of only the second, uh, I think, non-Tata chairman um, um, or the, thir- the third non-Tata chairman, but the first non-Parsi chairman in 150 years. But as I show in the book, actually, if you look at um, some of the other Indian business groups, the Birlas, the Ambani's, um, and even going back to the colonial period, all the other uh, major businesses, whoever you want, Bajaj, Mahindra, and so on, um, the Tatas are actually quite non-family below that top level. So um, this is partly due to the fact that Parsis don't tend to have a lot of children. uh, but it's also due to certain structural features of business in Bombay and business in the Parsi community that there is less of a tendency to pass on to children and less of a, which also leads to less of these kind of succession disputes. So the Ambani's is a classic case study where the father gives it to the sons, the sons divide the empire uh, among them and there's feuds and, and drama and all that kind of stuff. Uh, same thing happened with Birla, which kind of broke up under different groups. So these are um, case studies that a lot of people use to think about the dynamics of family business, but actually the Tatas don't really fit that model quite well. So um, I think that that's another reason why it was interesting for me to study it because while it does represent certain features of Indian business pretty well, other features, including this family character, Tatas are a little bit of an outlier or an exception. But again, if you just look at the top leaders um, and their personalities uh, are very sharply defined. And as I said, their their role in particular historical moments is very well defined. But actually, if you go beneath them, you see a lot of different dynamics that don't necessarily revolve around family and don't even necessarily revolve around the Parsi community. They have a very good, uh, very good nationalistic image, do good image yeah. for India image. Mm. Now, I think um, right now the corporation makes more money from outside of India than it does from inside India. And number two, going back to even going back to pre-colonial times during the British rule, they have like a reputation of being very anti-imperialism. In reality, does that contradict to what's really happening? Um, Yeah. And I should say before I answer that, I'll say that that reputation is actually kind of, if you will, the third factor that makes Tata somewhat um, different or or make it makes it stand out. Um, certainly, a lot of groups do philanthropy. A lot of groups have uh, good reputations, but Tata has kind of built up this really enormous cachet, uh, mostly due to their philanthropy. The fact that they have these big trusts uh, that have been um, uh, operating for um, since the nineteen twenties, thirties, and still own the majority stake in the business. Uh, And also because a lot of the industries that they pioneered, so the steel industry, for example, were industries that India needed to modernize and industrialize. 
uh, on that big scale. And the Tatas were kind of the first to enter into some of these new sectors. So they have this reputation, number one, of doing good, as you say, number two, of being of being serving India, helping build India in a way that perhaps more than other groups. Yeah. But you're right, as I show in the book, um, they have been really involved in global markets and global trade from the start. I mean, they got their start in the cotton and opium trades. Um, one major theme of the book, which sure. I kind of didn't really expect to find when I started, is their connections with the U.S., which have been going on from the very beginning. So bringing in kind of American engineers, American technology for the steel plant. Uh, then uh, moving also kind of modeling the themselves, modeling those trusts, for example, on the Ford Foundation um, and the Rockefeller and Carnegie Foundations, then in, into the era of the Cold War, actually using a lot of American money and American connections to kind of get around the restrictions mm. of the government. And then, you know, after 91, definitely, as you say, um, Tata is has a huge global footprint uh, that in some ways is more important sometimes than their domestic footprint. So TCS, Tata Consultancy Services, is uh, the company that kind of carries the group right now. It makes the most money. It's the moneymaker for the group. That, that That's the company where telemarketers call the U.S. and pretend that they're, they, they live in the States and they speak perfect English, but really they're in India. That's right. That's wow. right. And uh, that's part of that new sector that, that has grown since, since the early 90s. But they also do more higher level consulting. Uh, as well as this more basic kind of bread and butter IT stuff. But, you know, TCS is operating around the world. And um, because, so, you know, you could say that a lot of the businesses that I was talking about, you know, their their, um, more domestic Indian businesses don't always make a lot of money. And in some of those sectors, they've actually been burned pretty badly. So, for example, in telecoms, uh, Tata had many failed starts and didn't really establish a footprint. And that's a huge market in India. Um, So... Overall, I would say that that reputation of being kind of India first is definitely at odds with um, the actual history of the group. But as I show in the book, part of the point of trying to study it from the inside is to really look at how these things are kind of dynamic. So each generation of Tata management, um, you know, and and a lot of the kind of political figures that are commenting on Tata or, or involved with Tata are are kind of debating this, right? So in the 1930s uh, was a moment when uh, those American connections actually became kind of a political problem for Tata. A lot of um, nationalist politicians from the Congress were saying, hey, why are you you know, inviting, for example, American capital to control the hydroelectric companies, which were started as this kind of nationalist enterprise, you know, um, generating electricity for Indian mills in Bombay owned by Indian princes, the capitals owned by Indian princes, uh, and it started by, you know, by Jamshedji Tata in India. And all of a sudden now they sell the kind of ownership stake to the Americans and the politicians are, are like, what are you, you know, yeah. um, question, questioning the nationalist credentials. Yeah. So I would say that part of the book traces that dynamic between the global and the national, but it's a very um, complex and shifting dynamic. So I'm not trying to say that like, Actually, Tata is not nationalist because they do do a lot of things for India and within India. But nor am I trying to say that they're, um, you know, uh, one or the other. But you question their, I wouldn't say you question it, but you would say that their charity work and their philanthropy and, and you know, their their contribution to social sciences is also kind of a hidden hidden agenda that 
they're making connections at the same time. Yeah, I I would say that it, maybe that's putting it a little bit strongly. To Sorry, say yeah, maybe agenda. I put it strongly. <laughs> but <laughs> I do think that um, I do think that it is. I think in the tendency of like, if you were to read most books on Tata before mine, unless there's some kind of like hardcore anti-Tata book, which there are a few out there or yeah. kind of journalism, you know, criticizing them. But if you read most kind of mainstream pieces and, and mainstream scholarship and mainstream kind of journalism on Tata, there is this kind of assumption that everything they do is for kind of non-financial reasons, right? That like they built steel uh, plants and uh, cars and aviation, right? Which is another big sector that I didn't mention earlier that they entered into, we can talk more about that. Air India was started by, yeah, by the Tata. I want to ask about that after. Yeah, we can talk about that. But, you know, and, and people just assume that, oh, they're just doing this out of pure altruism, that they just want to help India. And it's the same with the philanthropy, um, that there's a theory or not a theory, but there's a kind of understanding that the Tatas are totally different from any other business that they that they operate on this kind of doing good um, principle that has no regard to profits and no regard to, um, you know, uh, to economics uh, uh, fundamentally, even though it may be good also for the bottom line, but really they're motivated by something else. And in the worst, I would argue the worst type of argument uh, that is made is actually kind of connecting it to kind of the Parsi community ideal, you know, because it, it that falls into that reductive trap of saying that the only way that people can operate, you know, in India is on the basis of their religious or community norms, right? right? So because the motto of the Parsis is like good thoughts, good words, good deeds, you know, that automatically means that Jamshechi Tata is going to start a philanthropic trust, you know, and I just don't think that's how the world works, you know, like the, the way that all these things have a different calculation, right? So to go to what you're saying about philanthropy, so yeah, philanthropy is good in and of itself, for sure. It helps India because the Tatas were very um, conscious of doing things that would benefit India as a whole. And that is true. So they wouldn't donate all their money, for example, to, to Parsi, tem- Parsi um, fire temples or low cost housing, as many other businessmen did. The Birlas, for example, did a lot more religious giving. So they, they were very consciously were like, we're going to build hospitals and universities and things that are really um, they didn't even necessarily help their own city of Bombay that much. It was really kind of all India vision. But in the process, as I show in the book, they also get some benefits for their own businesses and for their own needs, like cultivating these connections with different experts that can help them out uh, in their economic enterprises. And they also gain a lot of legitimacy and um, they also gain some tax benefits uh, from this arrangement and ways to kind of move around money and and move around and make sure that they can control their companies using the trusts um, in such a decentralized and diversified conglomerate. So, um, you know, the altruistic side or like the side that is non-economically motivated is works alongside with some of the other motivations. So right. it's not a hidden agenda, but it is definitely not as simple as just saying like Tatas are great because they were born like, you know, more generous or better than other businessmen or other, you know, other economic agents. A lot of defenders of capitalism would argue that capitalism is a, can be a force of good and it can kind of dissolve and take down mm. old barbaric traditions and customs that harm society and or harm a certain group of people and 
Tata Corporation is really dependent on its for- workforce. So my, I'm curious to know, you know, when it came to the caste system, mm. did, did they do anything with that? Did they kind of push it or did they try to get rid of it? Um, that's a, a great question. And honestly, one I don't get asked very often. And I, I wish I was asked more often about that. So like a lot of people who pick up the book might be surprised to find out that two of the six chapters are about the steel town of Jamshedpur, which is a town in Eastern India that they created, they built for from nothing, basically, for their steel industry. And it was also a town in which they, the Tatas, were the major employer. They were also the major landowner. Uh, and they were also the municipal government. So if you want a place that really shows you um, in our modern day and age what uh, a kind of mini society ruled by capitalists would be like it's yeah. Jamshedpur, right? And there's good and bad that comes with that. Um, and so um, right now I'm working on an article that is building on the themes of the book that explores the role of caste and religion in Jamshedpur. And it's very interesting because again, there's no kind of clear cut answer. So on the one hand, what you will see is some pretty striking statements including by J.R.D. Tata, the chairman, that make it, and Jamshedji, the founder um, who came before him, some pretty striking statements uh, that really do show you that their intention was to create a cosmopolitan and diverse city that really um, brought Indians from all parts of the subcontinent together and did not discriminate and uh, did not show favoritism. So um, there are many instances, revealing instances in the archives. For example, um, J.R.D. Tata is asked sometime in the 1930s to become the president of the local Parsi association uh, in Jamshedpur. And he refuses and he says, as the chairman, I cannot be associated with one community over another, even if it's my own community, uh, even though I'm obviously a Parsi and I'm obviously, you know, care about this community, but I can't be associated with it. And you see this um, all throughout. Um, Jamshedji's instructions to build uh, different places of worship for Hindus, Muslims, and Christians all throughout Jamshedpur um, are, um, you know, a, pr- a pretty clear example that um, even compared to other industrial cities in India that came after, um, uh, this is Jamshedpur is a place that there's a lot of mixing, and it's very clearly there's this kind of cosmopolitan ethos there. On the other hand, you can't deny that in the way they structure their workforce uh, and in the way that the residential and um, um, urban planning and the way the residential quarters were allocated, there's a very strong element of um, uh, communal religious segregation and caste segregation um, in terms of the, the lower levels of jobs in the plant and in the mine. So sweepers, cleaners, um, these kinds of people um, uh, go to the Dalits and, um, you know, different jobs go to different communities. Um, and that's, in that sense, Tatas are no different from other uh, Indian employers. And sometimes, as in the case of the 1944, um, 45 plan by Otto Königsberg, he's this German expert who comes in, he's this kind of very innovative, very interesting kind of modernist architect and planner. And he comes, he's hired by the Tatas. Again, that shows you their progressive intentions that they're mm-hmm. like, we, we're going to hire the best um, urban planners to make this into a livable and modern uh, town. 
And uh, you can see in that document, which I discuss in, in chapter five of the book, he's really kind of like, well, I would love to plan these neighborhood units, these kind of um, uh, subdivisions of Jamshedpur in a way that people of different castes and classes uh, can live in them, right? So you can have, for example, uh, a clerk or a mechanic's house next to, you know, maybe like a manager's house and maybe next to like somebody who's a, an unskilled worker in the sanitation department or, you know, something like that. Um, but that uh, event, but that's like basically a non-starter. And he's like, as much as I want to change this, I can't. And it's not necessarily clear whether it's the company pressuring him to do it or whether he's just kind of being realistic as he looks around and he's like, yeah, this isn't going to work. Right. And so we have to fall back on this kind of segregation uh, and division that is so common in Indian cities. So I think that, again, even with that, um, you could say that up to a point the Tatas do a lot to break down those um, those lines of division in Indian society. Um, but at the, but that stops only up to a point. And if you go to Jamshedpur today, it's a it's still a pretty segregated and divided uh, yeah. and unequal city under the control of the Tatas. You think they did that because they wanted to avoid uh, workers' rights and protests and things, anything that would, you know, prevent production from continuing on? Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. Um, and I think there's definitely a sense that they, um, there's always a defense in in all the literature, the archival material and the, their writings of the management and of the leadership of Tata. There's always a kind of defensive feeling that, um uh, this is just how things are, right? And as much as uh, we may want to change them or as much as we don't like it, um, this is just kind of how business is done and it is kind of how labor is organized in India. Uh, and so we better not rock the boat. So I think there's that, um, there's that. So you have all these waves of experts, not just Königsberger, but people all the way back to the 1920s, British social scientists, Indian social scientists, coming jump ship of being like, this is how, you know, you can organize your town better. You should create this, this and that. And they're like, yeah, sounds great, but we just can't do that, right? Because that's mm -hmm. just the way things are. So, um, and yeah, and part of that is to, to, buy, indust to, buy, to buy industrial peace. Um, but also I would say is that there is also a kind of interesting reluctance on behalf of, of, a, of a private employer uh, and a capitalist to actually govern people's lives too closely. And that's one of the things that I want to explore a little bit more in my in my research moving forward is, you know, there's a kind of an assumption, I think, that, for example, if we like, I don't know, turn our cities into private gated communities or, um, you know, there's a lot of literature about this now, a lot of concern about the privatization of urban space. You have in India places like Gurgaon where you have, um, or Gurgram <laughs> as it is now, um, but I still call it that, um, you know, but where you have private um, delivery of municipal services, water, electricity, sewage, that kind of stuff. And, and there's obvious problems with that. But there's always this, you know, if you read some of the criticism of that, there's always this assumption that um, that private capitalists just want to control us and want to control all of our behavior, like kind of all the time, kind of like a totalitarian state. Right. But that but that and that is, I guess, true up to a, a certain point. Um uh, but there's also a kind of limit to that. And you can see, especially when communal violence comes to Jamshedpur, and 
the city suffers several episodes of rioting in 1964, and 1979, but even beforehand in the 1930s and 40s, there's a lot of ethnic tensions in the lead up to partition and all that. And you see that, um, uh, that the company is really reluctant to get involved and reluctant to, to really show favoritism and really do what kind of a government is supposed to do, which is to adjudicate, right? So you have all these people coming to them as the town government being like, hey, you know, these Muslims have built a mosque on a plot that they're not supposed to, or the Hindus are being discriminated in the bazaar by, by you know, the Muslim, and then the Muslims are complaining that the Hindus are uh, organizing mobs against them and all that kind of stuff. And there is this really like strong aversion uh, to get involved and to try and maintain this kind of neutrality. And ultimately that's also for the reasons that you mentioned, it's to make their primary objective is to make sure the plant is running and producing steel uh, and, and making money. But at the same time, in order to do that, they have to be, they have to control the town. If they have to control the town, they have to take on, as I say in the book, the functions of a sovereign or the function of a government that has to adjudicate people's claims. You know, if you set up your own city of a million people, people are going to be coming to you with all sorts of problems and complaints that they want resolved. And to what extent do you as a private employer want to get involved in that? And I think if you talk to Tata people, even they will admit that that's been a struggle. And it's been it's been a struggle to kind of determine how much responsibility you want to take for a particular community and its operations. Uh, let's talk about Air India. So yeah. once upon a time... Tata opened up an airline called Air India and it was doing pretty well, I think. Uh, I know they bought a lot of artwork and they were really big on yeah. art. They even got Sal uh, Salvador Dali to get some ashtrays from him. So, and I look at the posters, the old vintage posters yeah. that they're so kind of like beautifully made and there was like a certain kind of pride in it, you know? But then something happens with Nehru. So I'll let you, go I'll let you elaborate on that. Yeah. So it's interesting. I don't really write about this in the book because it's been covered elsewhere, but um, Air India is really J.R.D. Tata's baby. So he was a pilot, um, you know, as somebody with a, with a fear of flying, I've been afraid of flying for mm -hmm. some years now, uh, reading some of those stories of uh, J.R.D. Tata flying this, uh, you know, little, uh, you know, twin engine plane <laughs> in the 1930s through the monsoons, you know, across India, uh, initially it was delivering mail. So it started as a mail service then expanded to a passenger service, mostly on the West coast of India. So in the East coast, there are other um, people. Uh, and, uh, and he was really somebody who grew up with a love of flying. He grew up in France and, and um, near his house there in, in um, Normandy, there was this aviator called Blériot. He was a famous French aviator. And so he kind of built this business out of his passion. And, he uh, took a lot of, he was kind of obsessive OCD really about all the details of service uh, on the on the flight. So the flight attendants uniforms and the timings of the meals and and uh, and the curtain, the state of the curtains and, and all that. So, um, you know, so there is that aspect of it. There's the more boring economic story, which is that um, obviously aviation in India was a growing sector. So it was a new market into which a lot of people poured into. Uh, and the Tatas were some of the leaders of that, but there were also other people uh, uh, that were maybe not as financially sustainable, maybe not as skilled, maybe not as careful 
uh, to manage their their new airline businesses. Um, maybe didn't have enough resources to buy planes and maintain the planes. So by the uh, end of World War II, by the mid to late 40s, you had a huge glut of companies, many of whom were kind of unprofitable and failing. And even the Birlas, uh, this is an episode I discussed in the book, that the Birlas came in uh, kind of latecomers and the Birlas were the Tata's great rivals. And JRD was like, what are you doing? Like, if you come into this sector, you are just going to add to the super crowded market. And we need to kind of consolidate rather than, than continue to compete. Um, because eventually, if, we all, if all our companies start to fail, because we're all trying to run, you know, too many routes uh, on, you know, and, and not making enough money, the government will take us over, right? Because aviation is, was considered a, an essential uh, industry. Mm-hmm. And that's not, uh, I should say, dissimilar from uh, other countries around the world. So if you think about all the great state airlines of, in Europe, for example, in this period, so British Airways is a nationalized airline, Air France, and so on and so forth, um, it's quite natural for India to move in that direction. But JRD wants to keep uh, this industry in private hands. And he tells Birla, hey, don't, don't come in, you know, don't come into this turf, you know, do something else. And Birla says, who are you to tell me, you know, not to come in? You know, you're, you're a monopolist. You want to be a monopolist. You want to be the only game in town. And the consequences, they kind of both lose. And in 1953, um, uh, the government decides to nationalize Air India. Uh, and uh, they say it's, I mean, I would say that it's pretty clear that there were solid economic reasons to at least consolidate that sector. And it made sense for it to be uh, run by the government at the time. However, what ends up happening then is um, they keep JRD. So they invite him to kind of continue to sort of run the run the airline and give his input, especially the international, um, Air India International, that side of it. Uh, but then there's a kind of second blow in the late 70s when they remove him completely from that company. And uh, I don't know much about the history of it beyond that, but I think um, you definitely saw a kind of decline in the quality yeah. and service of Air India. But also there are economic pressures that make sure that these kind of state airlines um, aren't very competitive in today's market. The airline business is a super, super tough business, uh, which makes it, I think, a little bit strange um, that the Tatas have chosen to kind of go back into it now. Uh, and some people say that's for sentimental reasons because they want to uh, kind of right the wrong that's been done to them. So they got back in and now they have this airline called Vistara, which is, a, I think it was a partnership with Singapore Airlines. Um, and um, especially now, post-COVID, I don't know how sustainable that sector is or that, that kind of line of, uh, uh, of that, that business is going to be. But the Tatas seem to be kind of really attached to it, I think, for these historical reasons. It could be kind of like a redemption, kind of like revenge. Like I could, do a be- I could have done a better job. Yeah, totally. And there's always, there's always discussions and rumors that they're going to buy Air India, right? Which would be like the ultimate. Yeah. Uh, uh, coming yeah, full circle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And these kind of narratives, you see them with Tata all, you know, even when they bought Chorus, which was the formerly the nationalized British Steel in 2007, um, they paid a lot of money for it. And it was right before the financial crisis. So it actually turned out they didn't know that, but it was 2007. So pretty bad time to go into huge debt over um, an industrial um, um, subsidiary or, or business. But they did it, 
And they got a lot of great press because it was seen again as this kind of revenge of India uh, uh, of, of coming back to the to the motherland that had colonized them and taking over. There was an uh, article in the New York Times that I quote in the book that uh, it literally was called "The Empire Strikes Back." Right? It was, um, but at the end, but you know that turned out to be a very problematic investment that kind of dragged dragged them down for the next decade of the 2010s. Um, and so you see this again, these kind of tensions within the group, which I think are very interesting to study between people who say the value, the symbolic value and the prestige value and the fact that it makes us global in this way is worth, even though it may not be like the most profitable or the make the most financial sense, uh, it's still good to do. And it was Ratan Tata, you know, who who really pushed for this. And then some of the people that came after him were like, maybe we should sell this off or cut this down. And there was a lot of infighting over that, um, over that um, decision. Um, but yeah, I think that that narrative, the allure of that narrative that you're mentioning, that that uh, that's always there. And I think Tatas are a group that are very conscious of history. And uh, that's part of why I like studying them because if you're a historian, you always have stuff to talk about with people from Tata because they're very conscious of and aware of their history. Uh, but you know, some people would ask, are they maybe a little too fixated on the past and too fixated on their traditions and their history? And then maybe that's hampering them from moving forward uh, sometimes and kind of cutting their losses. Um, but we'll see what happens with we'll the airline. It's very hard to predict, obviously. I think it was in the 90s when corporations start from outside of India started coming in and investing and they had the right to do that and they right to and then the competition which means that the competition would significantly increase for for the Tatas. How how did they survive that? It's interesting because um one of the ways in which they did that was to try and make a move into markets that would grow domestically. So um I think the auto business was one of them. Now that didn't end up doing very well, I think in the long run, but at least it gave them a, a kind of, a, you know, building for building the Indica, building a cheap car for the Indian middle classes. And then the Nano was a, was a huge disaster, but um, I think there was a, a kind of confusing, you know, there was a c- confusing um, goal that they were trying to have, you know, between like a cheap car, versus a, a kind of convenient car that could also meet some of the aspirations. I think that's what people are saying now was kind of the problem is that no aspirational middle-class Indian family wants to be like, oh, I'm, I'm driving the world's cheapest car. It's basically a rickshaw with, you know, uh, metal plates, you know, around. So, um, and it wasn't a very safe car either, right? So, um, and on Indian roads, you want a pretty safe vehicle, right? But it's very hard generally for, for example, foreign car manufacturers to really take hold in a, in a market like India because it just wasn't, it couldn't sustain, I think, the level of imports that we had. So they, they operate in there. Um, uh, TCS was the kind of reverse of that because it was really doing something where India was competitive on the global market. So they could actually sustain themselves on that on that basis, and now it's the biggest money maker in the group, as I said. And then in steel, they actually had some huge cost advantages um, throughout the 90s uh, and 2000s, and that was their very cheap ore from captive mines, which 
you which which is an advantage that they lost when they bought chorus because all of a sudden they had to compete for ore in open global markets so if the price of ore goes up say in canada they take a hit right whereas for yeah. the plant in india they could transport their ore from um uh, from the nearby mines in in bihar and uh, jharkhand and and orissa Right. So uh, if you look at steel industry, for example, even with what I said, these advantages, they had to cut basically half their workforce, half their permanent workforce in the early 90s. There was massive layoffs. Um, And as I said, in things like retail and telecom, the Tatas have nowhere near like the kind of position that, you know, you would expect them to have. They have not made a lot of advances. They're trying, but those are also the kind of sectors where foreign businesses can come in and compete, right? So retail is like an especially problematic area because you have like, you always have like Amazon and Walmart and like all these other multinationals kind of coming in. And then with telecoms, you have, you know, other players that have come in and and also they've tried to deal with the Japanese, uh, do a joint venture with Japanese and really uh work and um and so yeah there are some sectors in which tata has faced a lot of challenges um a lot of challenges and and unlike for example say samsung to give another example of a conglomerate they don't do a lot of this like manufacturing of kind of electronics and consumer goods that's the korean model um uh, of development in uh, and also the japanese model and the chinese model uh, is based on a lot of um, intensive skilled manufacturing of like consumer goods and Tata's are not really in that space. So, um, so they, they were never at risk, but never really could compete in those spaces either. Then in the 2000s, they started just buying companies like nonstop hardcore, right? That's yeah. There was chorus. There was Jaguar Land Rover. Yeah. Which, um, and, uh, what's the other one? The T. Tetley T. Yeah, yeah that's, Tetley that's, T. That's right. Tetley T, right. And these are, again, these are symbolic brands, pretty iconic, kind of British brands also. Tetley T is like something that you can say every British cupboard has a Tata product in it. Uh, and JLR was like a huge coup. And I think that it was, um, uh, the company wasn't doing well at the time. And there was, I think Ford was trying to buy it. And I'm not really sure what happened there. So I didn't research this closely, but um, but the Tatas came in with a better offer. And actually, JLR turned out to be a pretty good investment um, um, because it had they had access to the Chinese market. So as China was growing a lot um, faster, not necessarily faster, but certainly there are more people in China who could afford luxury cars um, uh, than in India, for example, or in other places. And uh, that's kind of what sustained JLR. Uh, in those markets. So yeah, I would say their strategy was to hang on to what they did well at home and kind of strategically uh, get into some stuff that looked promising on a more global level. And um, some of those gambles paid off and some of them didn't. Uh, And so that's kind of the story of the group. And so over the past 20 years, so like some people are saying that maybe they're kind of past it or maybe um there's some uh uh things that can be cut or trimmed down and some people say no they got to keep kind of pushing on so that's been kind of the main debate for the past decade my last question would be did anything surprise you when you were researching the tata corporation i mean i would say 
it wasn't a total surprise, but like, again, I think people might be surprised when they read the book to see, or at least I hope they will be. I hope what they people will find if they read the book is that it's not really a kind of traditional business history, right? So there are chapters and you mentioned art collecting earlier. There's yeah. a whole section about art collecting and photography and um, advertising. And there's a section about um, nuclear physics. There's a section about urban planning. There's, um, you know, there's a lot of political stuff. Um, there are these strange connections that I discussed in the last chapter with these Indian political figures like J.P. Narayan, um, who is this Gandhian, uh, first a socialist and a Gandhian kind of um, politician and activist in India. That's, and I think very few people know that he had this very close relationship with business and with the Tatas in particular for about 15 years um, in the 60s and early 70s, trying to, they're both trying to fight back or, or get around the kind of statist uh, Nehru's kind of and the Congress and Indira Gandhi's um, very state-driven agenda, right? So um, I did know that I would find all these connections and all these strange kind of angles and, and ways in which the Tatas were involved in some of, you know, in, in some of uh, India's political uh, events or in, in the realm of the arts or in the realm of the sciences. So again, through their philanthropy, their role in in, in physics, in medicine, the cancer hospital, in the uh, topic of great relevance today during the plague outbreaks of the 1890s, you know, the Tata, Jamshechi Tata was really promoting the vaccine, the anti-plague vaccine that was developed by this Russian uh, bacteriologist named Hafkin. And so it's an interesting echoes there with our present day of like yeah. um, private businesses trying to figure out what's the best way for us to get our operations running when all our workers are fleeing because of this outbreak of disease and because the, the kind of lockdowns of the British empire was imposing, the British authorities were imposing on Bombay. So vaccination was kind of one way to get out of that. And it was kind of uh, 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 this faith in science or this reliance on science to get out of uh, this kind of political economic problem. Same with uh, JRD and family planning. That's the same story. JRD was kind of obsessed with um, population control and 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 science-based family planning. Some of that took some dark turns, but yeah. uh, it was again it was again based on that kind of uh, uh, same principle of of a scientific approach. So, I guess what I'm saying to sum up is like that. You know, when you start researching the Tatas, you end up in a lot of random places. You end up uh, drawing a lot of connections between things that you didn't think were connected before. Yeah. And that's not a 100% surprise, but I think the extent to which that ended up playing out and the extent of the stuff I was able to find that could build out this larger picture uh, was at times pretty surprising. And I think, I hope that, um, you know, people look at the book and they might think that it's a kind of story of, you know, just of business or entrepreneurship or, or, of um, you know some of the stuff that we've talked about here of business strategies and, and things like that, um, no, but I a, want it to be read also as as a broader social and cultural history, which I think uh, the archive allows you to do. Yeah, Modi is a very controversial figure right now, and there's a lot happening in India in the last few years. What is the relationship between Modi and Tata? 
So I think the relationship between Modi and Tata, um, they got close uh, in the late uh, 2000s after there was this incident where the Tatas wanted to build the nano car factory in Bengal. And there were a lot of farmer protests uh, and the, the government uh, in Bengal kind of pulled the offer of the land. And then Modi who was then chief minister of Gujarat came in and offered the land at a very cheap rate and other perks that allowed them to build the nano car there. And Ratan Tata, who was the chairman at the time, was pretty enthusiastic about this. And he said, Modi is a great person to do business with. And it was, um, even though the Tatas were also close to the Congress at the time, it was very clear that they had a kind of backed Modi or, or given him a, a praise or an endorsement for the way that helped them do business. So that I think was, um, and that was again another, we were talking about narratives before, and that was another narrative of the Tatas coming home to Gujarat, right? And that Modi had helped them come home to Gujarat with their, with their big uh, kind of statement car project, which ended up not working out, but, but it was at the time, again, symbolically um, uh, an interesting uh, moment. Now, since Modi has come to power in 2014, what you see is that Modi has developed very close relationships with a different businessman, particularly the Adanis who are from Gujarat. And there's a kind of mutual benefit there in terms of the, uh, the um, uh, support that Adanis give to Modi and then uh, the way they're kind of involved in a lot of infrastructure projects. And the Tatas are not really that close to Modi in that sense. So they're not as close to him as uh, say the Adanis are. Um, but at the same time, they have also not been as openly critical of Modi as some other uh, business leaders uh, have been. Now, in general, the relationship today between Modi and the business community has been strained a little bit over the past few years. There's been some tension between uh, businessmen and, uh, and, and the government. There's, there's a lot of feelings that kind of the reforms that needed to be made to the economy have been kind of frustrated. Um, but so I would say that by and large, Tata has, um, you know, it's it's clearly they have expressed some support or some praise of Modi, but they haven't been totally uh, in his, uh, in his, um, you know, not totally identified with him so closely. And if you look at it historically, this is kind of the way business in India operates is since the Nehru period, there have always been um, uh, business groups that have that are close to the powerful. So Birla's uh, were close to Nehru, uh, Reliance, so Mukesh Ambani was very close to Indira Gandhi, and now there are groups that are close to Modi. And I think an interesting constant throughout this period is that Tatas have never really been 100% in the favor of the government. Uh, they have always... Uh, been sometimes supportive, sometimes oppositional, but they've never really had the kind of access and the, the kind the the kind of access to the halls of power in New Delhi that other uh, groups have had. But at the same time, it, it must also be said that just as sometimes during the Nehru period and sometimes during the Indira Gandhi period during the emergency, uh, they have expressed support uh, for the government, sometimes very strong support. Uh, when, uh, you know, when economic needs or, or economic uh, growth was at stake. So in the last chapter of my book, I talk about this, that, um, you know, it was a state business alliance for growth was kind of the project 
that the Tatas were were behind, but they weren't uh, always uh, as close uh, as I said as some of these other groups. All right, all right, man. cool. This is great. I'm talking to you. Yeah, so we'll send you ones ASAP. I'll do that for sure. All right, awesome, man. Take care. Cool. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.